At this point in our worship service each week, we seek to expose the message of a passage of the Word of God. Pretty much regardless of who's preaching, that is what's happening one week after another here, 52 Sundays a year. Strangely, I think there's 53 Sundays this year, but don't get caught up in that. But nonetheless, uh, week after week, we seek to expose the message of the Word of God. And we're going to do that again now, with the Lord's help, by His grace. I'd like to ask you what these three particular dates have in common. You might have to write them down or at least think through the part of human history we're talking about, but three particular dates and what they have in common. I'll go in your order. We'll go back too, too far. First would be May 8th of 1945. The second would be January 27th of 1986. The third would be May 1st of 2011. So I'll give them again. May 8, 1945, January 27, 1986, and May 1, 2011. These three dates have this in common. Great celebrations took place in a particular place for a particular reason. In the case of May 8, that's what we know as Victory in Europe Day. And all the headlines probably in the world, but certainly in Europe and here in America, celebrated and showed pictures of people waving flags and smiling and pouring into the streets in places like New York and London. On January 27th, 1986, the night before, the Chicago Bears had won the Super Bowl, and so people were crowding into the streets of Chicago to celebrate. I was two, (laughs) for the record. May 1st, 2011, Americans poured out of their streets and chanted, or into their streets and chanted USA together because Osama bin Laden had been shot in the Middle East. Those three dates are all about celebrations of different kinds, celebrating, making monument to certain kinds of events and certain kinds of victories. But I would like to ask you, when was the last time you celebrated something? Like, really celebrated? Where you cried tears of joy? What's the greatest celebration you've ever seen? The most people you've ever seen gathered in one place? That's easy. That would be the Cubs parade in 2016. Five million people in one place. Our passage today shows a great celebration And it blows all those other celebrations out of the water. And it is for a far greater reason than any of those other celebrations I just reminded you of. Please follow along in Revelation 19. If you don't have a Bible today, certainly invite you to take one of the ones that's under a seat in front of you. Pull that out. Follow along. You'll be on one of the last couple of pages in Revelation 19. And then you can take that Bible home with you if you don't have one there. I'll read Revelation 19 it's in, in its entirety where we will see that we need to worship God for his incomparable victory. Worship God for his incomparable victory. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. 
Once more, they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both slave and free, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Worship God for His incomparable victory. This passage gives us three closely related aspects, or shows us three closely related aspects of God's victory. The first is that God's victory brings comfort and joy to His people. Did you notice that? This, the, the ringing out, the celebration as if someone had just won a great war or a great championship. God's victory brings comfort and joy to His people. This is the response of the righteous. 
to the defeat of the wicked. It's not disgusting. It's natural to say sin has been crushed. And those who hated God and His people have been crushed with it. This is righteous people responding to to this defeat. But you perhaps remember, if you were here last week, this response, this joyful exuberance, is a direct contrast to the way that those who loved the beast and the false prophet responded. How did they respond when the great prostitute, the world system that hates God and wants to tantalize you and tease you with all the pleasures of this world just to leave you with rocks in your stomach at the end of the day, how did the world respond to the great prostitute, the great evil world system being thrown down? How did they respond? With mourning and weeping. I think we saw it four times in chapter 18. Mourning and weeping. We want to sorrow over this, they would say. But those who love God and the Lamb of God look at those circumstances very differently. And right there, we have a great contrast between those who love God and those who love this world. Those who love God and those who are on the side of the dragon. So the Lamb and the dragon pitted against each other as they have been throughout human history since Adam and Eve's fall in the Garden of Eden. Since that day, there's been war raging, and it's continuing now, but we know how the outcome ends, and we know that the Lamb has already conquered the dragon, that he's gasping his final breaths. But what I'm saying is that the contrast between the people who follow the Lamb and worship him is the exact opposite of those who follow the dragon and worship him, those who have the mark of the Lamb and those who have the mark of the beast. You have one or the other. It's invisible, but you have one. There's nobody neutral, like an ah-religious person who just goes through life not sure which way they want to land, so they just walk the center aisle. No, there is no center aisle. You aren't on a fence. You either follow the lamb or you follow the dragon. And what you love is revealed by how you react, by what you celebrate, by uh, your emotions and your reactions. What you love is revealed by your emotions and your reactions. And so you see people who love God on one side and those who love the evil one on the other side, and that's what determines the emotions that we see in this passage. Either exuberant joy, celebration, hallelujah, which just means praise Yahweh, praise God, or mourning and weeping. But you know, you reveal your emotions, what you love, People who live in your same house with you can tell you what you love based on what you do and say and how you react to hard things. A couple of Sunday afternoons ago, I reacted strongly to Tyson Bajant throwing a ball wildly up in the air and it getting picked off by the wrong team. And no one else was in the room with me, but everyone in my house knew something had just happened. And my son Andrew (laughs) walked into the room, as a six-year-old would do, and first of all, made sure everything was okay, but Clarissa, I could hear her whispering, it's okay, it's just the bears, to the boys. But Andrew walks in and he said, Daddy, I just pray that the bears will win and that you'll have a good attitude either way. I was like, (laughs) as I'm still catching my breath, from this horrific throw. I was like, I'll have a good attitude either way, son, I promise. 
And I did, by God's grace, because that made me realize, man, this doesn't matter. So stupid. But my emotions revealed what I truly loved. But did you notice who is singing in verse 1? It's those who belong to God. It's this great multitude of people who are celebrating this victory because they see this, this loud, this great multitude, because they see that salvation and glory and power belong to our God. These things are His rightful possessions, which reminds us of chapter 7, telling us that salvation belongs to our God. We see that God's judgments here are true and just. There's nothing immoral about God's judgments. There's nothing wrong with them. They're actually perfect judgments. Because again, he has judged the great prostitute, which we saw in chapter 17 and 18 last week. He's avenged the blood of his people, of his servants. That's all of his servants who have, been, who have had their blood shed throughout church history. And this reminds you of chapter 6, where the saints are crying out. Do you remember this? In chapter 6, verse 10, I think it is. And they're crying out. And what do they cry out? They say, How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? Here's the answer. On the last day, at the great battle, God avenges the blood of all of his servants, all of his saints, who have been slain because of their love for Christ, their faithfulness to him. This is a reminder that, yes, truly, God is the one who avenges, not us. Which is why Romans says, you don't need to take vengeance yourself. The Lord says, I will avenge. Not you. Leave it in my hands. And the celebration that you see, this, these ring, ringing out cries of hallelujah multiple times, it's just the same celebration as you would see when Osama bin Laden was killed or as when you found out that Adolf Hitler was dead or when you found out that Germany had surrendered. We could go on and on. That celebration is what we're seeing here in these cries of hallelujah. Praise our God is just spelling out what hallelujah means there in verse 5. But do you notice in verse 4 that there is someone seated on the throne and that reminds you that everything in history is in God's hands. So don't fret. Don't live full of anxiety and fear and trepidation. God is seated on his throne, and from the throne, perhaps angels around the throne, perhaps Jesus himself crying out, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him. And to fear God is just synonymous with saying, worship God, give reverence to God, take God seriously, worship him in light of who he is and all that he is. And we have a little book on the table if you would like to research that topic a little bit more to see what the Bible says about it. What does it mean to fear the Lord? And I would encourage you to pick that up after the service. Verse 6 shows this full-throated voice of the great multitude getting louder and louder. It's as if it says you're standing under a waterfall and you can't hear the person next to you talking because it's so loud. Or it's as if you're at a cabin in the mountains and a thunderstorm has come right over you and the thunder is deafening and the striking of lightning is all around you and the hail is hitting the metal roof and you can't hear a thing. 
That's what it sounded like. That's what it sounds like when God is praised this way. And verse 6 says, you are praising the Lord our God, the Almighty One. When was the last time you just paused on that word Almighty and just asked yourself, what's it mean in my life that God is Almighty? It's got to mean something. If I worship a God who is Almighty, that needs to change the way I think, pray, act, love my family, and love my church, and on and on. It also affects the way you fear other people. The Lord is on your side. What can people do to you? The worst thing they can do is kill you. And Paul would be like, to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's fine. I'm not afraid of you. It's our perspective as well. What can people do to us? So of these three closely related aspects of God's victory, we see first, God's victory brings comfort and joy to His people. Secondly, God's victory brings creation to its intended end. God's victory brings creation to its intended end. What I mean by this is that God has always intended to dwell with His people. And that goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. And the rest of the story of the Bible is how God is going to dwell with His people forever. And when we get to Revelation 21 and 22 in a few weeks, we're going to see, I will be your God, and you will be with my people, and you will dwell with me forever and ever. This story ends with a happy ending. God getting His way the way He wanted it to be back in Genesis 1 and 2. He clears the obstacles out of the way so that you have full access to Him and you will see Him face to face. God's victory brings creation to its intended end, which is Him dwelling forever with you, His people. And we see this in what the passage calls the marriage of the Lamb in verse 7. Rejoice, exult, give Him glory. Three ways of saying praise God, just like we've already seen hallelujah four times. We've seen praise God in verse 5. Here it is again. Rejoice, exult, give Him the glory. And here's the reason why. Because the marriage of the Lamb has come. This is the day of celebration when all of God's people are gathered to Him forever. And there is no more curse and there is no more dragon and there is no more beast or false prophet to try to sway you from worshiping the Lamb alone. We read in Ephesians 5 that the whole point of marriage is about displaying eternal truth. So you have a man married to a woman not just so that they'll be happy, and not just so they'll be holy, though that, those two go together. You should have both intertwined with each other in your home. But you have a husband married to a wife so that the whole world will see what it's going to look like when Jesus is married to his bride, the church. And so we see eternal realities in every marriage. Whether those people are Christians or not, marriage is designed to picture these realities. God has always intended to dwell with his people the way a man dwells with his wife and the way a wife dwells with her husband. And so the marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. That's talking about you. That's talking about the way you live, making yourself ready for that last day. But how do you get ready for that day You wear the righteous robes that are given to you. You didn't earn 
your spot at the supper, at the marriage. You didn't purify your own clothes by your own hard work or because you used extra spiritual detergent. You are granted these beautiful, fine, bright, and pure cloths, clothes, so that you can display the fact that God granted this to you. Do you notice that in verse 8? It was granted to her. I've probably said this a dozen times. That's called a what in this passage? A divine passive. A divine passive. In other words, who was it that granted these beautiful linens? It was God. And you know what? That construction of the it was granted or it was given or it was allowed or it was permitted shows up 21 times in Revelation and every single time God is the one doing the acting. He's the one granting. He's the one withholding. He's the one giving. If you are in Christ, you will stand before God on the last day in robes of righteousness that you did not earn that you were not seeking, and it all gives the glory to God. But there still is this sense of be showing my faith and my repentance by the way that I live because of that phrase, the bride has made herself ready. You have a part in your sanctification, in other words. And the fine linen the end of verse 8 tells you what this fine linen is. It Just very kindly of John, he interprets what this vision means. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Who are the saints? You are. You are one of the people called a holy one in the Bible. It's not talking about like an extra spiritual set of people who are kind of in their own class. No, the saints are Christians. Every believer in Jesus And the righteous deeds, those are the things you do that show your love for God and your faith in Jesus. This is you get up again and again to keep changing your children's diapers. This is you get up again and again to keep doing your homework. This is you get up again and again to go to your job or to love your neighbor or to pray for your church. You do these things over and over again. These are the righteous deeds of the saints and it's part of what you are fully and beautifully arrayed in on the last day. But it was all given to you by God So you keep saying to him, Hallelujah, praise God, let him receive the glory. The angel said to me in verse 9, write this. This only happens a few times in Revelation where he just makes sure, like, just in case you would put your pen down for a second, John, grab it now and put this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those. That's a picture of the good life. If you read... I don't know, The Atlantic, or USA Today, or People Magazine, we could go on and on. What is the good life? What's it look like? You have a perfectly chiseled body. You have so much money in the bank, you can go anywhere you want and do anything you want. You have the best clothes and the best purse and the best shoes the nice house with the really beautiful landscape lighting outside and perfect windows that match the shutters. And we could go on and on. That's what the good life looks like. Until you die. 
And let me preach Ecclesiastes for a second, because Michael Asigno is not here today. He hates me talking about the fact you're going to die and just saying this over and over again. He doesn't hate it. He, just, he knows it. So, Ecclesiastes says, eat, drink, and be merry. It says to enjoy the good gifts that God has given you because you're going to die. So be thankful for the life that you have, but know it's going to end. And so the vision of the good life that the world throws out to you is A, unsatisfying, and B, temporal. It has an expiration date on it. And it may be really soon. And it may catch you off guard. And then that good life that you left behind, somebody else is going to enjoy that until they leave it behind. But the good life, those who are truly blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So now instead of being the bride, you're looking as if you, at, this, at this feast as if you're a participant in it because you've been invited. It's really cool to be invited to something. Whether it be a meal, or someone's house, or a party, or a wedding. But who, just look at the text again, verse 9, who does the inviting? It doesn't say. It's a passive So who do you think does the inviting? God invites you to the marriage supper. And that is a glorious truth to meditate on. In other words, you're going to dwell with God forever, face to face, and you are going to celebrate His grace forever and enjoy life, whatever that's going to look like. I think we're going to be surprised by how similar it is to the world we live in now, just way more beautiful. And no curse and no corruption. We will praise God and we will truly be the blessed ones because we have been invited by the Lamb. Do you wonder if you've been invited? Like when you hear these words, is it sitting well with you or is it making you anxious? Like, man, I really hope I'm invited because I'd rather be on the inside, not the outside. And when we get to the next section, you're going to say that even more. But maybe there's somebody here who, as we've talked about before, you lay on your pillow at night and you are full of fear because you are not sure if you're a Christian because those doubts keep coming back and boy, a true Christian would not have these doubts or because these temptations keep coming back, and a true Christian would not be tempted in these ways. So I must not be a Christian, so let me pray for the 417,000th straight time. Lord, please forgive me and make me one of your children so I can be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I just want to urge you, if you are like that person I just described, I would love to talk to you. Whether it be after the service, Clayton would love to talk to you. Many of our members would love to talk to you because what we want to do is tell you, this is about God, not about you. This is not you praying the magic words of an incantation that finally seal the deal and put the key in the lock and turn it and the door opens and now you're in. This is not you finally get that piece of mail that says you have been invited, now you can rest well. This is about, does God keep his word? Can we really trust God? So if you have questions about that, we would love to encourage you in your walk with the Lord by encouraging you that God wants you to know you can be a Christian. You don't have to go to your grave one You can go to the grave with full confidence in every word that God has said, and his word cannot be broken. How does John respond to this vision 
of the good life, those who are blessed, those who are invited. He falls down and worships an angel. Way to go, John. A reminder that John himself needs the words of this truth, of this passage. And how does the angel respond when he falls at his feet to worship him? He said, please do not do that. Don't worship me. Worship God. Which is why the first two words of the big idea of my sermon is worship God. Because I think that's what we see happening in this passage over and over again and because of these words of the angel. Don't worship the angel. Don't worship the saints, quote-unquote. Don't worship Mary. Don't worship your favorite pastor, your favorite preacher. Don't worship angels. Worship God. Trying Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God. There is room to give honor to whom honor is due. But even that reminds me of Luke 17. Seventh, uh, I'll just read verse 10 where the servants say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Every Christian should say that on the last day. Lord, I was just doing what you called me to do. And I love you. Verse 10 says, I am a fellow, this is the angel talking, I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Anyone who holds to the testimony of Jesus, who says who Jesus truly is, and all that he has truly said is true, anyone who holds to that is a brother of ours, is a sister of ours. And so it is appropriate for us to draw lines as Christians, but let's not draw them too hard in the wrong places, or in the wrong places, I should say. Sometimes it's really hard to know where to draw these lines, like what is it that separates us from those Christians, and so forth. But anyone who holds to the testimony of Jesus is a brother, the angel is saying. And he says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, which I think simply means that when we tell the truth about Jesus, we are, in the same way as the prophets, telling the truth to sinners for their good. We take on a role it's like the Holy Spirit gives a message to the prophets who gave it to us through the Word of God. And now we who continue to teach the Word of God, all of us who hold fast to the testimony of Jesus, to the truth of Jesus, to the Word of God, we pass this on. And in a sense, we are joining in the mission of the prophets to call sinners and say, look, look how kind God is to reveal His compassion to you. And look how just God is to judge all those who rebel against Him. And that brings us to our third section. God's victory brings comfort and joy to his people. God's victory brings creation to its intended end, which is that we dwell with God forever. And finally, in verses 11 through 21, God's victory brings just judgment on his enemies. God's judgment, God's victory brings just judgment on his enemies. Jesus rules the nations in undisputed triumph on the last day at the final judgment. Verses 11 through 16 here are describing the character and work of Jesus, showing him in majesty on this white horse. The idea that uh, in verse 12, he has a name written that no one knows but himself. In the ancient world, knowing someone's name in this particular way is a way of having control over that person. And so it's showing that no one has control or authority over Jesus. There's lots of beautiful details we could talk about. I don't know how many of you guys grew up in churches like, like this, I'm sure, where to teach the children Bible stories, you used flannel graph. Flannel graph was very cool, like 
It was the iPad of the 80s. And the teachers would put, you know, I'm not sure if that's Moses or Abraham or Jesus, but they all look kind of the same, and they put this person up on the board and then teach a lesson about it. You kind of move pieces around. I don't remember any flannel graph stories telling about Jesus walking through the world with a robe splattered with blood because of his conquest, with a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. Obviously symbolic. The eyes of flaming fire is obviously symbolic to say he sees everything. He's not going to miss anyone. You can't hide behind a rock from him or hide in a cave. He sees everything and everyone. The sharp sword shows his power and his commitment to the word of God, which is the truth. The fact that he is the word of God reminds us, as it says in verse 13, reminds us of John 1. The word was God and the word was with God. Same was from the beginning with God and so on. He perfectly reveals God. This idea of walking through the wine press and getting splattered with the grapes is from Joel 3.13 and from Isaiah 63. And in both of those passages, it's saying that God is the one walking through the wine press. Here it's saying Jesus is walking through the wine press. This is like the gazillionth time that John just wants to make it flash in neon lights to tell you Jesus is God. That's why you should worship him. Follow the Lamb wherever he goes, chapter 14 told us. The judgment and destruction, one author said, of the wicked spell redemption, relief, and salvation for the righteous. The destruction of the beast and its sidekick means that the righteous are delivered from evil forces that persecuted them. The righteous are saved and delivered because the wicked who persecuted them are judged and destroyed. And just to go to the national news from a couple of days ago with the situation in Lewistown, Maine, for several days, no one could leave their house because they weren't sure if this guy was still out there on the loose. When they got the all clear, there was relief. There were certainly tears of joy. We can go back to work. Our kids can go back to school. There was relief because the beast in this passage is conquered by the Lamb. Verses 17 through 21 describe Jesus' conquest of the beast and the false prophet, who are described in more detail in chapter 13. Verse 21 shows the brutal end for all those who just continue to rebel. We've heard the calls to repent, and we've stuffed our ears with cotton, so we don't have to hear you anymore. We've put our noise-canceling headphones on because we're sick and tired of these calls that say that Jesus is the one true Savior. So leave us alone. And all of those who take that perspective and rebel against God are slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him. Jesus is the righteous judge. All of his ways are true and righteous, the passage said. And what's the result? All the birds that are circling overhead are gorged with their flesh. About six weeks ago, there was a nasty possum on the side of our church building. And I was standing out by that door over there, if you know what I'm talking about, watching this possum. And the guy standing next to me was like, I think it's just plain possum. I was like, no, it's actually dying. And that was on Saturday night. And on Tuesday, there were three thrilled 
vultures out there tearing that thing to shreds. When we came by that night, all you could see was the spine. It was so gross. Those vultures did their job. Praise God for not making the deacons have to cut that up. But nonetheless, (laughs) nonetheless, that's what is pictured in verse 21. It's gross to think of the birds being gorged. All this is, is a symbolic way of saying, Jesus wins, so hold fast to Him and worship Him and turn from your wicked ways and follow Him. Because the pleasures of this world pass away. They don't satisfy. That's not the good life that you see pictured in those magazines and online in whatever form you find. They can't satisfy. They weren't meant to satisfy. The good gifts of this world are intended to give you hints of the pleasure that you find in Christ alone. I talked to you about that January 27th, 1986 date for a particular reason, so that I could read a quote from a guy who was there at the Super Bowl and at the parade. He said, I got up the next day after the Super Bowl win with a pit in my stomach. What now? Where to? I had gone out full and would return empty. What is this life? What does it mean? Why does every minute pull me away from everything I love? This is an unsaved man we're talking about based on everything I know about him. And he got it. I love watching the highlights of the 85-86 Bears. Awesome. But if you do go, and you do win the trophy on the last day, it leaves you with rocks in your stomach every single time. But God himself always satisfies and always will satisfy us at the marriage of the Lamb. He will bring history to its fitting end, bringing us great joy, justly judging his enemies who repent, who refuse to repent and believe his promises. So friends, I urge you, worship God for his incomparable victory. Our Father, we as your people marvel at the fact that you would be so kind to open our eyes to reveal these truths to us. We are overwhelmed by this reality. We beg your forgiveness for letting trivial trinkets take our eyes off these truths. We pray that the beauty of this passage, but the stark and stunning pictures of this passage would compel us to hold fast to you, to love your people and our families, to love sinners who have yet to repent of their ways. Pray that we would take these words seriously and worship you, the giver of the true good life. In Jesus' name, amen.